I grew up with an older brother and a younger sister. And later on, I had, an, I had another brother, maybe 10 years later. But at the beginning, it was just us three, my older brother, me, and my younger sister. And sometimes we'd have to pitch in to help around the house. And often we didn't have a choice of what the job was, but if there was a time that we could choose between jobs, you know, the lesser of two evils, then, uh, then the fairest way that we, we could do that was to play this game. Rock, paper, scissors. And it worked, you know, for board games as well, who would go first. And in the days before smartphones, it was actually a fun way to spend your time while you were waiting. Because it never got old, because every new round had that risk of, you know, will I win, will I lose, you know, was that thrill of the flutter, you know, that, uh, you know, that, um, yeah, it was just exciting, it was that sense of the unknown, which way are things going to go, and you could either trust a random chance, or you could take it up a level and try to read your opponent to psycho, psychoanalyze them to really try to get inside their head. And then there was another option which was to cheat by revealing your hand just after the other person had. Not long enough for them to notice, but long enough so that you got a sense of where they were heading with their, with their fingers. And a couple of years ago, and I've probably mentioned this because, you know, pastors are great at churning up the same old stories, right? So I've probably mentioned this here, but uh, I say it because I was proud. I actually won an entire rock, rock paper, scissors um, thing against nearly, nearly 200 people. And I did it simply by playing rock every single time. It was awesome. I felt really, really proud of myself, like I'd crack some code or found out how to, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, how to cure cancer or something like that. It was just epic. It was just so exciting. Um, and in fact, I'd like us to, to try it now. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and I'd like you to play rock, paper, scissors. But the rules have changed a little bit. Okay. And this is how the rules have changed. There isn't, yeah, there isn't any paper. Okay, there's only rock and scissors. Okay, so, so I'd like you, you, you to turn to the person next to you and do the rock, paper, scissors, and then reveal, but you can only choose rock or you can choose scissors. Are you ready? Okay, three, two, one. Okay, rock, paper, scissors. Shoot, okay, shoot, is that the word? Okay, rock, paper, okay, one more time, ready? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay. Now, I hope you just realize that rock, paper, scissors only works if you have three options, right? I saw some of you repeatedly choosing scissors over and over again, and that's okay, but uh, there's a lesson to be learned, because the thing is that the rock has to blunt the scissors. The scissors can never win, win against the rock, and the scissors have to cut the paper, and the paper has to wrap the rock, right? Uh, whereas if you play it only with two, it's not just the same because you would never choose scissors and you'd always choose rock over and over again. The fun would be removed from the game, as hopefully you just found out. It's a pretty sad way to spend 
you know, a couple of hours, let's all turn back to our smartphones and start playing games or looking at Instagram. Because it's no longer working, right? And what I found out is that as we interact with life, um, we also have two options in front of us. We, we can live life God's way, or we can live life my way, or your way. Um, so we can either win, or, or we can lose. But many of us try to play life like we've got multiple options, like it really doesn't matter which you choose, because as long as you play it right and smart and wisely and you're sincere, then there's a good chance that you might win. But just like rock scissors without, you know, the paper, there's always going to be a right way and a winning way, and there's always going to be a wrong way that leads to you losing the game. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. It says this, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. Let's uh, stop there for a sec. So they like to walk around, it says, it says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Now, these, you know, the prayer shawls, and, and the prayer shawls, like, had a tassel at each of the corners, and these showed that these were men that you were supposed to respect. And one, and so it was a symbol, it was saying, these are important folks. And then verse 38 goes on, and be greeted with respect in the marketplace. And one writer says that when the scribes or when the teachers of the law walked down the street, so the scribes and the teachers of the law, it's the same thing, it's just you know, two different phrases. But one writer said that when the scribes walked down the street, everyone was supposed to rise in front of them unless you were a laborer and then you were excused because I guess it's hard to stop what you're doing if you've got an armful of bricks, right? So if you're a laborer, then you're excused. But everyone else had to rise when the scribes walked down the street. And then we go on to verse 39 and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. Now, these seats would have been the seats right at the front of the synagogue, okay? So, like, right here in front of me, and they would have been the seats which are facing you, okay? So, you're the, you know, the regular folks, but then all of the special people and the scribes, you know, would have been up here looking at you as the word was you know, being shared. Um, so next week we're actually going to start trying that with our board. We're going to have them all sat here at the front watching you guys, you know, and we'll see how that has an impact on our worship services. Um, what it might help actually is that they could see which of you are taking a nap mid-service and then they could report back to me after. So that's one option. <clears throat> Now, nowadays, you know, folks like the seats at the back of the church, right? Me, I love the seat at the front, not because, you know, it's, it's just what I like. Maybe it's because it's not as far for me to walk from the front pew up to the stage. But, uh, but 
What Jesus tells us is that we are to watch out for the teachers of the law. And verse 40 tells us why we're to watch out for them. It says because they, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now, what we find out here is that the name and the prestige of their role mattered more to them than righteousness, than living a life which is just. So while they were praying their long-winded prayers, and as pastors, we're the worst at praying long-winded prayers, which is why God has blessed me with a stutter, so that it's less of a risk. Um, but while they were doing this, they were also taking the most vulnerable people in society for all that they were worth. So what that means is that their, their religion was like a puddle. It was wide, but it was very, very shallow. There was, no, there was nothing really there. Now, uh, a few years ago, Wendy and I and the family were in Myanmar, and uh, we, saw, we saw people who were living at a, with a with a living standard much lower than we would be used to. You know, we're, we're rich. You know, if we sat here, you are rich, you know, compared to the folks that we saw. And we met a family, and they were so warm, and they were lovely, and they said, let us show you around. And so they took us to one house of worship. It was, um, yeah, like a temple uh, that was over 6,000 years old. And the gold and the bling and the shine was absolutely overwhelming. We were even told of that one of the towers um, had l loads of jewels in it, like just tons and tons of jewels. No one, no one was able to see it, but you knew that it was there. And what that meant is that, is that folks who were faithfully part of the Buddhist faith had handed these over, you know, over generations, over generations. And when I heard this, I was in a bit of shock because these people didn't have a lot to live on regardless. And even so, they were giving huge extravagant gifts that they weren't able to afford to, to hopefully earn their way into favour with whoever was up there. And sometimes in church, it's not really different. And, you know, for me as a pastor, I have to, I have to be careful about how I talk about money with you. And so verse 40 makes me a little bit nervous because as a teacher of the Bible, as a pastor, if I'm living a life of hypocrisy, then I will be held accountable. That's what that means. And so with these, you know, the teachers of the law, we, we find that they were rather proud of themselves. They were rather self-entitled. Rather than relying on the grace of God, they were strutting around like a peacock, thinking that they were somehow worthy of what they had grown accustomed to. You know, they were wearing their huge, huge robes, thinking that they were all that, when just a few meters away, maybe, was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of the Lord was, who was all that. They were fools, and they fooled themselves. Verse 41. Verse 41 says this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting the money into the temple treasury. 
And I think Jesus is still watching. I think he's still watching us. The uh, largest area of the temple was known as the Court of the Gentiles, and I referenced that a few weeks ago. And inside, inside the Court of the Gentiles was another court known as the Court of the Women. And outside the walls of the Court of the Women, so inside the Court of the Gentiles, but on the outside wall of the Court of the Women, there were these uh, large receptacles shaped like a trumpet um, where people would come and they would place their offerings. There were 13 of them. And what we find out from Mark chapter 12 is that many people threw in large amounts. Now, Mark, he's, he's not written, really judging people's motives here. And maybe there were some who had great motives and their hearts were uh, really pure. But when I hear this phrase, threw in, it just sounds to me like they're really pleased with themselves. They don't, you know, walk up and, you know, carefully place it in. Instead, they throw it in because they like the sound as it re reverberates around in the, and uh, lands at the bottom of the jar with a massive clink. What a pleasing sound when you can land that nice, huge, you know, check and just hand it in. It, it, it feels really, really good. Verse 42, but a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Now, now to put this into context, what she was actually putting in, I read, was worth about maybe 10 minutes of work for a labourer. Okay, so if, if you're a labourer and you work for 10 minutes and you charge, well that's about how much she actually put in, and so, you know, in my mind's eye, I can hear the sound of the coin, uh, you know, the coins as they pink, you know, pink, 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 pink. Uh, it's, it's not an impressive sound, it's a tiny sound, and, but you would have heard it, right? And you would have known that, you know, that's not a lot of money. Now, one of my girls um, received a tax receipt this year, which is awesome, and uh, it was for one dollar. Who's for a loony? Okay, and uh, I'd like to say thank you to Stacy for that. That was uh, wonderful. But, well, this would have been less than that. It would have been insignificant. It would have been unworthy of a tax receipt. It would have not been worth, you know, the paper you wrote it on. But it was apparently worthy of the attention of, of our Lord Jesus. Verse 43 says this. It says, calling... His disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. So he's explained what this more means. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So on the one hand, you know, you have these scribes who are proud with their front row seats and their flowing robes. And then you have these wealthy people who are loud with their fistfuls of cash that they're throwing into the jar. And then on the other hand, you have this woman who's nearly invisible. No one notices her. And she hands over her last couple of cents because she is placing all of her trust in the Lord. 
Now, this woman was a bit of a kindred spirit with, with the founder of our movement. You know, we're, we're in the Wesleyan church, and the word Wesleyan comes from this guy, Wesley, um, and he and his, 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 his eight siblings were raised um, without anything. They were super, super poor. And his father, who worked in the church, uh, he was even thrown into prison because of the money that he owed. Regardless, even with that example, his father, uh, John, went, uh, went into the ministry like his old man. And he, he, and he expected that he would be as poor as his old man. But he ended up unexpectedly landing a job at a really, really prestigious university. And he was paid the princely sum for his first year of, wait for it, 30 pounds. Okay, I'm, I'm expecting a response like, whoa, like this is shocking. He was paid a princely sum of 30 pounds. Okay, there, there we go, great. And he was over the moon because he'd never had this amount of money. And so what he did is that he wasted this money on brandy and on cards and on smoking. So he's a good Wesleyan, right? <laughs> but then one day he, he, uh, he, he thought that he would give some money to this um, lady who was working as the chambermaid where he lived because she didn't have a warm, warm, warm coat. But when he reached into, into you know, his own coat, he found out that he, he didn't have enough money. And so he wasn't able to help her because he'd already squandered all of his money. And so from then on, he made a decision that he would only spend what he needed to live on and the rest he would actually give away. And so the next financial year, he earned, wait for it, 30 pounds again. And his living expenses were only 28 pounds, and so he, he gave away how much? Two whole pounds. The next year after that, he earned 60 pounds, but his living expenses were the same. And so he spent uh, 28 pounds, and he gave away 32 pounds. The year after that, his, his wages rose to 90 pounds. He still only needed exactly the same, and so he actually ended up handing away 62 pounds. The year after that, he earned 120 pounds. Now you can say, whoa. Okay, 120 pounds. He spent what he needed, and he gave away over 92 pounds, which is three quarters of what he earned, over three quarters. And so, you know, the example from him isn't, should I maybe tithe or not? His example is, how much do I need for me to live on? You know, the house and the mortgage and the family, you know, and the debt and all this kind of thing. Have that sorted out and then what's left over, God, that's yours. That was his example. And then there's one author who wrote this. He said this, it's not how much you give that matters, it's how much you have left over. It's not much, it's not how much you give, it's how much you have left over. And that's why this widow really got God's attention. Because, because what lay, lay under her gift was this massive trust in him that he would look after her, that, that he's never failed her yet, like we just sang. And so in that huge worship place, the most wonderful act of worship was maybe her with her little coins. 
Now, now, maybe you're like me, and if so, then, then, then maybe you wonder what's the link between money and worship? You know, um, am I required to give? Um, is it supposed to be maybe 10%? Is it more? Is it less? Will God be mad with me if I don't give? Um, and I can't answer all of these. But what we, read, what we read in the Bible, it seems to stop short of telling us that we have to give a certain amount. Because if we read 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, it says this, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so what the issue here isn't the size of the amount, it's the size of the joy in your heart. Okay? You know, that's the issue. And there's this, I have a friend, he's a pastor, and uh, he recently and wisely said this, and I'll say it to you twice so that you can really get it. His name is Larry Blakey, and he says this. He says, God does not want our money. He wants us. But if he does not have our wallet... He does not have us. He does not want our money. He wants us. But if he does not have our wallet, he does not have us. And I really like that. I really like that because that really challenges me. And so when I see this widow, I don't see her with a long face doing her religious duty. I see her with a bit of a quiet smile on her face that she's thrilled that, that she has the chance to worship God in this way. And in my mind's eye, you know, I think that this was not her first time maybe doing this, that, that she had done this in the past many times, and she'd learned, learned to trust in, um, she, she learned to place her trust with him. And as she trusted him with her little, and she experienced him meeting her needs week after week after week, when it reached this moment with Jesus watching, I imagine that it was not a big deal for her. It was just how she lived her, 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 her life. One of my other pastor friends uh, said this, our culture typically operates from an attitude of scarcity. We are focused on what we do not have, but this woman's whole, whole paradigm is one of abundance. That God has taken care of me so far, and I expect He will continue to take care of me so I can give cheerfully. Which is amazing, right? She had seen God meet her needs in the past, and so she was able to give super cheerfully. And here's here's the beauty of the situation: is that Jesus, the one who fed fifteen thousand people with five loaves and two fish, was watching her. And he wasn't going to let her walk away in need, hungry. He would meet her needs, which I think is, is absolutely wonderful. Success means many different things to many different people. And so for us who are worshipping Jesus, I hope that our main measure of success is really getting God's attention.
Well, if this is the case, if success means getting God's attention, then, then this woman was wearing a gold medal on the podium of God's Olympics, even as she walked away without two coins for her to rub together. And so I do wonder what happened after this event if maybe Jesus walked up to her and, you know, he maybe took her out for a meal. We don't know that, but, you know, knowing Jesus and knowing how he works, you know, that's what I like to think. Let's turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Mark chapter 13, verse 1, which says this. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on one another. Everyone will be thrown down. Some of these foundation stones of the temple were as tall as a monster truck. They were as long as a school bus, and they were as wide as a giraffe is tall. They were 12 feet by 37 feet by 18 feet. These were incredibly huge, absolutely massive, and yet in a few measly years, they would be stone dust, because the Romans would attack, and the temple would be no more after the year 70. And so there would be no more teachers flapping around in their prayer shawls. They would be gone. And there would be no more rich folks with their oodles of cash. That would be gone into thin air. Also, when I started this sermon, I shared about what would the game of rock, paper, scissors look like if we didn't have any paper. If it was just a game of rock, scissors. And as a game of only two options, there's only one way to win is to choose rock, over and over and over again because the rock will win over and over and over again and what this simple silly thing shows us is that this is what life is like if we're placing our security or our hope in our bricks or mortar in our pensions or in religion or in seeking other people's approval then we will lose every time if we're walking around pleased with ourselves, if we're walking around proud of ourselves, then we will lose every time. It won't last. And that's why Matthew chapter 6 verse, verse 2 says this. Oh, okay. Okay, I don't have that. Um, this is why Matthew chapter two, 6 verse 2 says this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they may be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may, may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you. And this is what this widow knew is that it really didn't matter how much she actually gave, but how much she had left over. She knew that God knew her heart and that he could see what was done in secret. And indeed, as we find out from this passage, God really did see what, what, what she, she gave because God was right there. Jesus was right there watching her. He saw her walk up. He heard this 
little, little sound of the coins falling into the offering plate. That, and he, he knew what she had in her bank balance afterwards. But it's not about us saying, okay, Lord, have, have everything in my bank. That's not what it's about. But what it is about is living a life of trust, knowing that God will meet our needs if we seek his, his kingdom first and his righteousness. This is the life that grabs his attention. And we know that she got Jesus' attention, God's attention, because the first thing that Jesus did when, when she gave was to call his friends over to him. And he said to them, hey guys, look at this. This is absolutely amazing. And so they walk over, wondering what he's looking at, and they see this little old woman that no one else was looking at. So what? All they see is a poor old woman, like they've seen a million times before. But Jesus is amazed by what he sees. He didn't see her lack of money. He didn't see that she was a woman or, or that she lost a husband. What she saw was someone who trusted him. And for him, this was like looking at, a, at the Mona Lisa or a Rembrandt or listening to a wonderful piece of music. For him, this was like looking at a wonderful sunrise or um, eating his, his favorite meal. This woman's trust in him was so absolutely powerful that he had to bring others over to share in the moment with him. These scribes and these wealthy folks, they were enslaved. They, they were enslaved. They needed the, the praise and the go-ahead from others. But here, at this moment in time, there in the temple, Jesus was looking at someone who was absolutely free. Absolutely free. We play life like it's rock, paper, scissors, like there's multiple options, like we can choose whatever we want and there's a good chance that we will get ahead, that we will win whichever one we choose. But life is more like rock, scissors. There are only two choices, which is to live for God or to live for you. And there's only one way of life that, that gets God's, God's attention. There's only one way of life that calls, causes him to call others over to say, look at this. This is amazing. I haven't seen anything like, like this before. And that's why in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, like we see on the screen, it says this. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And what that means is that God has his radar on and he's looking for the heart which is his. This, this, this heart that just, just, just trusts in him. This is the heart that wins. And he's ready to rally his forces and to help that heart, to, to help that soul, to help that person to meet their needs in, in ways that they would never expect. One day, the sound of the, sound of the crowds uh, will end. And then the scribes, um, what the, they're, they're, you know, they will realize that they lose. And one day, that sense of, sense of self-worth which the rich people get from throwing in piles of cash will one day end, and it will ring hollow. And that temple with its massive stones is no longer there. This thing which they, which they place their hope in is, 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 is no longer there. It was destroyed in AD 70. But what has outlived all of those is these really tiny coins handed over by this 
Ruth or Widow. These have lasted throughout the years. And how do I know this? Because here we are, 2,000 years later, still having a conversation about it.